Well, good morning. It's a little cooler in here than it is out there. I think summer has, the heat has settled in, I think, until fall. At least it looks that way. We, we enjoyed uh, some unusually cool days the last few weeks, but now it looks like it's here to stay. We'll see. Only God knows. Weatherman don't know. Don't count on that. <clears throat> they kind of just play it as it happens. That's their idea of prediction. Anyway, I don't even know how I started talking about that. Must be some underlying animosity or something where I was counting on it not to rain and then it rained, you know, those kind of things. But um, we are in Matthew chapter 23 and Matthew records uh, one of the four Gospels, the life of Christ. And you know the end of the story. And so you know that Jesus is literally in his last week of life. And very soon we will read in this gospel about Christ going to the cross. This guy, this man, this rabbi, the Messiah, the son of David, who is filled with life, filled with truth, filled with power. Soon Matthew will record for us that he goes to the cross very humbly very meekly, without any protest. In this passage, Jesus speaks his last sermon to the public. So we will see him focus in on the disciples, and there's much more to say and much more to teach, but it will be primarily aimed at those closest to him. But this is his very last public sermon. And he gives this sermon or this teaching to the people. I'm just going to assume because it's what is on his heart at present. It's what's before him at present. And you'll know that what has been happening in his life is that the Jewish leaders have been confronting him and challenging him because they are envious of his power. They're envious of his uh, sway over the crowds. They want that. They want that control. They want that recognition. And they don't want the competition. And so they've schemed to get rid of the competition. First, they tried to get Jesus to condemn himself with his own words by posing questions that are impossible to answer without losing support. And that was their intention. But Jesus outsmarted them. He outwitted them. Every time when they thought they had him cornered and he even silenced them by asking a question of his own. And scripture, we read it last time, says they stopped coming to him with questions. <laughs> this is Jesus's last sermon. And I guess because the Jewish leaders have been confronting him, this sermon is about the Jewish leaders. And in this sermon, he's already warned the leaders. He's warned them desperately to repent. He's used parables to show them their hearts. He's exposed their hearts. And they could even see wicked hearts in the parables, but they couldn't quite apply it to themselves. And so though he's warned the leaders, now he wants to not just confront the leaders or warn the leaders. He wants all of the people to also be warned because... False teaching and bad leaders are not just poisonous to themselves. They're a danger and poison to all others 
that might be tempted or deceived into following or listening to what they have to say. So the master goes and shares this. He wants them not to be naive. He wants them to be aware of flawed people. He wants them to know that everybody that talks for God or is for God isn't necessarily for God. He wants them to discern how to listen to what people say so they can find out, is this person from the Lord or not? And wants them to, to be able to see lifestyles. And is that in line with how the spirit would change your life? And so he brings to them this warning. This passage. And it's known as the, the seven woes. And because, you know, woe is kind of a pronouncement of judgment. Oof. You are going to get it based on your trajectory, based on what you're doing. Woe unto you. It's coming to you. Let me get out of the way so I don't get the overspill. But what I want to do in this passage is take a different attempt. And rather than concentrating on the woes in a negative sense, I want to actually look at them in a positive sense. So like what we learn when we study the Ten Commandments is though God's word can be given in a negative way, you can turn it around and it means the opposite is true. So, for instance, if God says, thou shalt not kill, it's something you're not supposed to do, you can't do, but what you can do is love life and preserve life and save lives. And I want to look at this passage in the same way. I kind of feel like we've been beating up on the Jewish leaders and I know they had it coming to them and it's only because this is they're after Jesus and Jesus is rebutting them. But I want to give them a little break in the sense of um, rather than going after the flawed ways of leaders to pull to bring out the positive aspects. So if Jesus hates this, then what does he love? And then by doing that, what we can do rather than saying, well, this is for the Jewish leaders or this is for pastors or elders or deacons. And I'm not one of those. So I'm just going to sit here and sleep or or. You know, listen and apply it to the person that's preaching. This allows us to apply all of these principles really to ourselves. Because we are all in one way or another positions in positions of authority, positions of leadership. And Jesus is talking to his disciples. And so when he points out things that he doesn't like. As his disciples, we want to say, oh, okay, well, if you don't like that, then what do you like? What can I produce in my life that would bring you pleasure, that would bring you delight? So that way it applies to us all. Uh, And, you know, we it's not just for pastors or leaders. It's for Sunday school teachers. It's for uh, Bible study leaders, because these are principles of leadership. Uh, It's for parents who are. Leaders over their children, nurse their children um, for prayer group leaders. We have the retreats coming up. And so many people will be asked and be given positions of leadership as maybe small group leaders or worship leaders um, or giving a talk, bringing God's word to people. But what does God look for in a person like this? How can we do this in a way that pleases him? So as we find things Jesus hates, we also find things Jesus loves. I want to, yes, believe it or not, we're going to cover the entire passage. I'm going to have to let some things go. But we are going to um, read it in its entirety and look at seven 
principles of leadership. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind man, for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. For you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Your serpents, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, 
And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. As you can see, Jesus did not pull any punches. He is not afraid to confront error. He's not afraid to confront ungodliness. He's not afraid to confront those who claim to be godly or think they're godly but are not. They made this whole career, their whole life, more about them. What they can get out of it. About them being in the spotlight than God. About their righteousness being known rather than lifting up the righteousness of God. And Jesus calls them out for it. They don't know it, but there's a changing of the guards that is taking place. And the leadership of God's people will shift to those who truly put their faith in Christ. And soon after this, the church is founded. Jesus calls them out. But I want to look as we look at the flaws and the weaknesses and the things that Jesus calls out. I want to also look at the opposite of the things that Jesus appreciates or would be working in those that would serve him. So first, you've heard it before. Practice what you preach. So the negative is for they preach, but do not practice. And so the positive is, therefore, practice what you preach. The scribes have placed themselves in the seat of Moses, in the chair of Moses. And to be in the chair of something is to be the expert. It's to be the one on top. It's to be the authority of that matter. And so at the university, maybe you have heard or seen or know a chair of the department and say, He's the chair of the Department of Genetics. And so anything that has to do with genetics has to be run through him. And any questions that people have, you have to take it to the chair. And so they have placed themselves in the seat or the chair of Moses as the experts of the law. So anything pertaining to the law, what Moses says, has to come through them. They process it. They direct it. They teach it. The chair. They put themselves in that position over the people. The way that happened, of course, is for hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been meeting in synagogues. And we know that they go to the temple and they worship and they offer their sacrifices and they offer their worship corporately. They ask forgiveness and atonement is given and they are practicing the feasts. But that is just seasonal. The, the everyday meat and potatoes of their faith in the relationship was when they came together in the synagogues. When they sang together in their little groups and lived before God locally, when they heard God's word taught, expounded and just read out loud for what it is in the synagogues. That's how they, they grew. And the people that led these synagogues or brought the word or read the word, of course, were the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, the elders, the leaders. They explained it. 
Jesus is saying is these very people that have great wickedness in their heart. So while they're talking about you shall not lie or bear false witness, there's grave deception in their own hearts. So they're saying one thing and doing another. And in their hearts is a lust for power. And greed. And they don't step down for the position. They don't recognize this. They don't humbly repent and say, maybe I should step down for a season until I can get this right in my life. It's like they're above the law. They're kind of making the law. And it makes it treacherous because it's done in secret. On the outside, they look wonderful, godly. And on the inside, there's just a lot of gross darkness and deception. They look like they're generous, but really they're greedy. They look like they're righteous, but really they care more about their righteousness than the righteousness of God. They celebrate their own. So they love this seat. They love the chair of Moses. And they loved being in that position. And I'm sure read God's word with great voice inflection and great passion. And yet they didn't keep it. So in this, we learn, I think, what God would expect from someone in that position, from someone that would be put in a position where I'm going to share God's word with you. I'm going to counsel you in God's word. I'm going to help you or encourage you by using God's word. That's being, in a sense, in the seat of Moses. He would have this person not just know it and not just speak it or teach it, but also live it. Practice what you preach. How many times have you heard that in your life? Practice what you preach. And it reminds me also of why community is so important as we think about the synagogues, as we think about today's church. Because in community, that's where we're less likely to be able to hide our sin, right? Because we're closer to people. We're rubbing shoulders with people. It's when we alienate or alienate ourselves and and don't hold ourselves accountable that people can't pick up on the fakery in our lives. But when I'm close to somebody, you can see that when you see me out here, when we spend time together and we're praying together and you're probing and asking me questions. That's when the, the secret sins often come out and it's God's form of sanctification. So we want to take a great opportunity to use community, our community groups, our prayer groups, our Bible study groups, all these things that God has laid before us, use those to our advantage and confess our sins to one another. And it's an opportunity for for God to set us free, whereas our tendency is to want to, no, I don't want anybody knowing about this. And of course, there are things that you want to be discerning about. But somehow the, the leaders just escaped all of this accountability. So I would say that one thing the Lord wants would would be for his disciples to be discerning about these things. What are you saying? Is that God's word? Because as we'll see later, they added to God's word. And then two, so so not to be naive, but secondly, to practice what they preach. And so as we think about ourselves in positions of leadership, uh, maybe the retreat's coming up or you've been asked to serve in some kind of way. How do our lives line up with that? You know, if, if we're going to be evangelists, we want to not just share the gospel, but live the gospel. If we're going to be a prayer group leader, we won't we don't just want to lead the group. We want to pray ourselves. So we want to be engaged in embracing the things that 
God is using us for in the kingdom. So in other other words, or another way to put it would be to be authentic, be real. Now, what generation hasn't craved authenticity? I mean, every generation, everybody wants authenticity. I just want you to be real. If If that includes your faults, so be it. But be real, be honest, be true. Our generation is so lost about, we want authenticity and yet we don't know how to get it because we've forsaken God. You can't find yourself without God. We have all these people wondering, who am I? What am I? Am I a boy? Am I a girl? What am I supposed to be in this life? You you can't answer that question without God. He created us. There's an order to these things. There's an order to our minds and our hearts and our biology. It works a certain way in harmony. It's so sad to think about. We can talk about these communities and and how wicked and dark it is. But it's just sad. It's sad to think that there are people, even kids, that don't have any idea who they are, what they're supposed to be. That's that's torment. Now, where does torment come from? The enemy. And God would have every one of them set free by the truth that he is the creator and that we are the sheep and the people of his pasture. We want to be real as disciples. And not just sit in the chair and love it. That's where the influence comes from. It's just like, you know, when you read something from or hear something from somebody who's been there and done that. Somebody that used to uh, haven't read her in a long time. But for a, a long season, probably about two years, God used in my life years ago, Elizabeth Elliot. Because she speaks with authority. How? Because the challenges that she gave, she lived on the mission field. The sacrifices that she she offered to God. And there was things that she went without. You know, her husband was killed on the mission field. And she turned around and goes back, right back out to reach the lost, the very people that murdered him. I mean, that that's living it, not just saying what we ought to do. And man, I just hung on every word. There's power, there's influence when we practice what we preach. Second, be humble. Jesus has been saying this since the first day of his ministry, right? As a people of God, we have to be humble, broken in spirit, meek. Verse three, uh, five, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. And six, and they love the place of honor. And seven, and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. They let it get to them. They let the fame, the fortune, the power, whatever it was, the admiration, the admonition, all these things, they let it get to them. And they love that so much that they lost sight of the important things in following God. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus looks for. And I would say strives to produce in his leaders. It's not about the showy titles. It's not about the names. And they will go to great sacrifices to get that recognition. If they have to give, it's not for the sake of giving. It's for the sake of being seen giving so that someone will say something. And feed that empty heart, that bottomless pit that is so needy of the recognition of man. Oh, to just hear that term rabbi or wise one. This fills them up, blows the head up, 
way out of proportion in pride. They love that. They they thrive on it. Of course, we're all prone to these things. It's not just this group. People in the church, leaders in the church today, all of the disciples and even people outside of the church, of course, titles are a big thing still today. They had a great uh, network of system of the importance of titles and how you are to address people. We have some of that today. How you are to address people to show respect. It was very, very strict and stringent. You didn't want to break protocol. They had, um, and, and you'd be punished. There was ways to be punished if you broke protocol as far as not people giving, giving people the proper honor and respect and rabbi uh, titles and so forth. But they let themselves think of themselves more important than they really were. So God loathes the arrogance. He loathes the showboating. Do we have any people in the church, pastors, leaders that like to showboat today? Draw attention to themselves. All along, Jesus has been teaching his disciples to be humble. So he says, don't worry about the titles. Don't worry about being called rabbi. There's just one teacher. Now, what's he saying? Titles are wrong. Titles are bad. Don't talk about your earthly father. There's one father. No, titles are important. We find that in scripture as well. But there's a place for them because at the end of the day, when you hang up your if 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 you there's a time to say your honor (laughs) when you're in court, you want to give that respect or yes, sir, officer, uh, my speedometer must be broken, officer. I didn't realize I was there. Titles are are important and father, you want to address people, but you don't want it to go to your head because at the end of the day, what Jesus is saying is. After the judge gets off that seat or that chair or whatever, he hangs his robe on the hook. He's just a brother. He's just a man. And though great respect goes to our parents, goes to our father, at the end of the day, he's just another fellow human being. He's just a brother. And we want to keep the titles or whatever position God has given us, however great mankind looks at it. And they, some people will be glad to bestow upon you the honor and they thrive in that too. We cannot, as disciples of Christ, let it get to our head. We just have to see it as Christ sees it. You're all just servants of God. You're just servants serving in different ways. No matter what your title is, no matter what you wear to work. When the Apostle Paul went to Athens and he preached the gospel and the Lord worked in power, they began to hail him as a God. And he quickly extinguished those flames. Whoa, don't give me that. Mm-mm. That goes to God, not me. I'm just a servant. That's the kind of attitude. So whatever happens in these positions that God is putting us in, maybe we will find success. And maybe our little groups or our people will really thrive on our teaching and look at us with great honor and respect. We, it's our responsibility to be careful and not let it go to our heads. Third, keep it simple. Woe to you, scribes. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So they were preaching God's word. And that's why Jesus says when they sit in the seat of Moses, do what they say to do because they're preaching right out of God's word. But then there's other things. They came up with a network of how to apply God's word. They added a lot of rules to it, which can be 
uh, helpful to a point, but when it becomes equal to the law, it's no, it's no longer helpful. And it became so important that it became a part of the gospel message. It became a part of, here's what you have to do to serve the Lord. This is what it looks like. And as legalists, they added all kinds of little things that you could and you couldn't do to the law and to live for God. They made it very, very complicated, turned into a salvation by works to the point where you, you couldn't even see the kingdom of the door to the kingdom of heaven anymore. How do you get there? Where am we going? What do I got to do? It just brought lots of confusion. They weren't headed to heaven and neither were their disciples if they followed in those same footsteps. And so Christ is warning them. All these rules. <clears throat> and you think, well, that's kind of old fashioned. We don't do that today. Well, wait a minute. I think the tendency is still there now. Do, do we not all have in our own minds a picture of the quintessential Christian? We all in our own minds carry what we think today's Christian ought to look like, today's disciple ought to look like, right? I mean, they, sh they shouldn't wear those clothes. They should wear these clothes. They shouldn't listen to that music or even that kind of Christian music. They should listen to this music. It's more pleasing. It's more pleasant. You shouldn't go to these places. You, you, you need to have this bumper sticker on the back of your car. You need to read this version of the Bible. And before long, if we're not careful, we're making a disciple and we're we're turning them into our idea of what Christianity should look like. We're not keeping it simple. We're not letting God's truth change them and transform them. We're painting a picture and adding all kinds of stuff that we like. Or that we think ought to be there. Keep it simple. Let God do the work. Be careful not to add your own preferences into what it means to be a Christian. And people look at it and say, I can't do that. I can't get up at six o'clock in the morning to, to pray. I don't want anything to do with God. So we, want, we don't want to give that impression. Keep it simple. Fourth, speak the truth. I mean, how many times have we heard this? You can't even read scripture without being confronted with the importance of our words. And the challenge of a self-righteous person is how can I hide my sin? How can I keep people from knowing that I'm a sinner because I want to only look good? It's hard work and that's a challenge. I have to act, but I also have to lie. And so they came up with complex systems of lying, which is what any hypocrite in any age would do to cover yourself up, to cover your tracks. And so they came up with a system about the importance of words and the importance of truth and the importance of oaths. We looked at this a little bit previously when Jesus said that your yes be yes, let your no be no. They got into this system of uh, making promises and making oaths. But some of them didn't count. It all depended on what they swore to or what they swore on. So they could make a promise and an oath and then you'd come back. Hey, where's that $10 you, you owe me? Oh, well, that didn't count because I only swore to uh, the gold and not the temple. It's kind of like, you know, we would say, I, I swear on my, my mother's grave. It's supposed to really mean something. What Jesus is saying, tell the truth all the time. Don't come up with don't, none of this stuff with, well, my fingers were crossed behind my back, so I don't have to give you my extra piece of pizza. I just, you don't get it. 
because this. And Jesus is simply saying when it comes to leading God's people, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't come up with this complex system of when you can lie and when you can tell the truth. And he just gets down to the bottom line. Look, I know every word. All this stuff, it happens under my sight. So leaders need to be truthful. Fifth, major on the majors and minor on the minors. You tithe, verse 23, mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Well, what are the weightier matters? What's really important to God? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. And he doesn't say you don't have to do the little things. He doesn't let them off the hook. He says, no, in addition to the little things, you just don't forsake any of them. But there are things that are more important than others. If you're going to spend more time on things, don't spend all your time counting seeds and, and putting little piles of powder, spice powder in things. And then looking at everybody else's seeds and make sure they have the right amount of seeds. That's not what. The walk of faith is. And that's what they got tied up into. Went to enormous lengths of putting little things right. And of course, we know from the the, uh, story of the Good Samaritan just how bad it was. Where they would completely neglect people just so they could keep their little laws. The faithfulness and the mercy was not to be found and then it got really bad he talks about the gnat and the camel well you know the law says we shouldn't come into contact with dead things now what happens if a gnat gets into my goat milk and dies drowns and then i drink it am i unclean or not we need to have a big debate about this this is very important and you can get all tied up into these kind of things and that's why jesus said look you a little gnat, the weightier things. There's all these things happening in the world. People are walking in darkness. And you're spending all your time trying to figure out if you're clean or not because a gnat. See, we need to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And as Christians, we can get little pet peeves too. That just run all through us and we think, man, that can't be from God. We got to get this straight. And get caught up in this. And forget about the lost world. Forget about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And forget about Christ himself. If we're not careful. The tendency is there. To pick out our pet peeves. And make minor things. Much more important. Than they should be. And he calls them. Whitewashed walls. So let's look at six as well. A leader will. Clean the inside. A Christian leader, a disciple is really concerned about what's in here and not just about what's out there or what people see. And verses 25 through 28, he says, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all un. Cleanness. So he's putting it, he's, you know, it's, it's uh, metaphorical. You have cups and you have a plate. And if you have a bowl that's really shiny and clean on the outside, spotless, and you're really hungry, say, for ice cream, for example, 
and you want that nice, fresh ice cream, are you going to put it in the bowl when you look at the bowl and you look and there's maggots in that bowl? It's, it, Jesus is intending to kind of gross us out here. Because what he's saying is that these leaders, the way they're living and the way they're choosing to think and deal with sin and look at God is in the inside. They're gross on the inside. They're they're dead. And the whitewashed tombs today, we keep our cemeteries very nice. We keep them groomed and we might bring flowers to show honor and respect. Well, they showed honor and respect as well, but they uh, they painted their their sepulchers, their tombs and so forth to make them look beautiful, to honor the dead. And Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're whitewashed on the outside. You look like you're fresh and you're clean and on the inside. It's just dead bones. I mean, you can make a cemetery look beautiful on the outside, but underneath they're, they're decaying bodies. And he is confronting them about being gross and dead. Beautifying the outside. Perfume smells good. And we can, we can put perfume on dying things, but it doesn't change the fact that they're dying. So Jesus is to the point here about this outward appearance stuff. He said, look, look at your own heart. And, and to get your own heart clean, the only way that's possible is to repent before a holy God. You can't clean your own heart. Your buddies can't clean your heart for you. You have to get on your knees before a holy God or however it is that you show submission and humility. Say, God, I am a sinner and I am in need of forgiveness and I repent for my sin. As opposed to doing their deeds to be seen by others. And of course, we know that they wore the flactories on their foreheads and the fringes. Uh, to rep represent the prayer life in the Old Testament, God said, I want you to hide your word. In, in essence, have my word on your head. And it was to be taken figuratively and somewhere over time, I guess, to um, for, uh, people trying to think, well, how can I look better? How can I look holier? Well, I'm going to take God's word. and I'm going to put it right here so everybody sees that I'm learning the scriptures and I'm going to wear my fringes so they can see my prayer life and how impressive it is. And so the phylactery's got... Bigger and bigger and bigger because it makes you look more spiritual. It was intended to be transforming in one's heart and one's mind. Hide your word in my heart and in your mind. But again, it was one of those things that was turned into merely for appearance sake. Just like I could walk in here with a box full of Bibles. Man, he must be holy. And every time John Rosima teaches, I, I get I look at it in this version and then I get another one out of man. Oh, he's looking ooh, in the original Greek. <laughs> so we can get caught up in that. We need to clean the out the inside. And then lastly, we'll close with this. This is what we all need to know. We're going to be judged. We're going to be judged. You serpents, verse 33, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell, verse 35, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth? They made it look like, you know, if I would live back in the day, that prophet would have never been killed because God's people, God sent prophets to warn them and to judge them and to reveal to them his heart 
And they killed him. They didn't like what they had to say. So they killed him. And these guys are saying, oh, if I lived back in that day, oh, that would have never happened under my watch. And Jesus said, no, you're the you're the very ones that would kill the prophets. I've already sent some and you're scheming right now to kill. Fakes. And judgment. You have to know that judgment is coming. And so Jesus gives these stern warnings and these indictments against the leaders. So we want to live knowing that everything we say and everything we do and how we parent and how we lead, how we teach, whatever it is, will be judged and we're held accountable to these. And then watch how after all of this, look, look at the heart of God. I mean, these leaders have defamed God. They've robbed him of his glory. They've turned his beautiful law into a system to serve self. And listen to what Jesus says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 37. The city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. So after delivering this indictment, he again opens his arms to say, if you would but repent and come to me on my terms, the door is wide open and I just want to hug you around your neck. I mean, they're plotting murder. And he's saying, if you just come to me. I mean, that is the grace and heart of God towards all of us. The best way to get away from God is to run to him. Don't try to run away from God. Come to him humbly on his terms. Serve him and worship him. Is the spirit of God speaking to you this morning? Is he speaking to your heart? The spirit who promises his presence among the saints and his people and promises to make us holy and sanctify us. Is he speaking to your heart and to your mind this morning? I pray that we would all Give him our hearts. Worship him in that way and make our lives about his renown, about his glory, about what we can do for him and not make it about ourselves. Practice what you preach. Be humble. Keep it simple. Speak truth. Major on the major majors, minor on the minors. Clean the inside and know that we will be judged May God bless the preaching of his word.